Welcome to the TPC Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Pentecostal Church is located at 3700 Kelly Highway in Fort Smith, Arkansas. With roots anchored firmly right here in the Arkansas River Valley, it continues to be a beacon of hope in a hopeless world and a hospital for hurting souls. TPC is a place where you can call home and fulfill your calling in the kingdom of God. Join us for this incredible word from the Lord today. Thank Him for His goodness. Come on, let's lift up the name of Jesus. We praise your name in this place, God. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the name of Jesus. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. It's good to be with God's people and feel his presence. Amen. Amen. I give Pastor Sullivan honor today. I love that man of God with all of my heart. How many are thankful for Pastor Sullivan? Amen, and thankful for Brother Patrick and, and his influence and impact on my life, and I'm thankful for this church and the people that are here. It's good to be surrounded with God's people. It will give you strength when you have none. It'll bring help when you feel like, I don't have anywhere to turn. Amen. I'm thankful that you are here today. Um, Pastor Sullivan, let's say this, that Brother Shelton um, says that he has learned how to speak bishop. That means that whenever his bishop says something, he doesn't really say it flat out, but he knows what he means by it. And so it was a little over a week ago that Pastor Sullivan asked me to preach this Sunday. And then Sunday, uh, as he was preaching last Sunday... Uh, he brought me up and he had his arm around me and he said, there's a lot of people in here that haven't heard your testimony. You need to say that sometime. So I hear you, Pastor. You didn't tell me what to preach, but I understand. He told the staff one time they wanted him to read this book. He didn't I mean he just mentioned the book. He didn't tell them to read it. But I knew what he meant. He meant read the book. And so I, I'm going to share something that might be familiar to some of you today. Now, Bryston, you can't fall asleep because I'm going to need you at the end of this sermon, okay? Don't fall asleep on me. And um, we're going to talk about the goodness of God. Amen. So the book of Isaiah, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3. Isaiah prophesies more about the Messiah than any other prophet in the Bible. And he speaks about how Israel would harden their hearts when Jesus would come and they wouldn't receive him. He talks about the virgin birth, the son to be born, and the government being upon his shoulders, about the kingdom of God expanding, about Jesus being the chief cornerstone that would be rejected. Talked about how he would be acquainted with grief and sorrow and how he would take uh, the punishment on his shoulders, that he would... He would forgive us of our sins. He would swallow up the wrath of God. How he would, he would take stripes on his back and that we would be healed by the punishment that he would take. It talked about how he'd be buried in a rich man's grave and that he would be resurrected. But other than my sins being removed, my favorite prophecy concerning the Messiah is found in Isaiah 42 and verse 3. The Bible says, and this is speaking about the Messiah, this is a bruised reed. That word bruised in Hebrew means crushed. A bruised, crushed reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's just saying that the bruised reed, I won't break it. And the fire that's on its way out, I won't lick my fingers and just put it out. And what he was saying is, as long as there is something left, as long as there is something left. I'm going to pray today that the mercy of the Lord would flow through this place. I want to pray. I have some friends watching online today, and, and one in particular, Jolene, is my neighbor across the street, and she goes in 
Tuesday for surgery. She, is, she has cancer. And I'm just going to pray the Lord's hand upon her and upon this service today, okay? Lord, we're so thankful for your goodness and your kindness. I pray that you would flow throughout this place, that you would touch our minds and our hearts, God, that you would help us, uplift us today. Let your encouragement flow through our hearts, God. Lord, I pray for Jolene that your hand would be upon her, that you would touch her body, God. I'm praying right now that you would heal her. I bind up cancer in her life and anybody else that's in here, Lord, and I speak healing in the mighty name of Jesus. I speak healing in the name of Jesus. And we give you all the glory and all the honor. Won't you clap your hands one more time unto the Lord? Amen. When you do that, you can be seated. The book of Ezekiel was written by a prophet bearing the same name, which means God will strengthen. And so what God does in Ezekiel 37 is the Lord carries Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. And he sits him in the midst of them. Now, I always have read this scripture is that Ezekiel was kind of seeing a vision and maybe he was up on a mountaintop. But as I read it again this week, I come to realize that the Lord actually set him in the midst of dry bones. You have to understand that during this time that Ezekiel was prophesying and the Lord is using him to minister the children of Israel have backslidden greatly against God. They have turned to idolatry. They have offered their children as sacrifices to a God by the name of Baal and Molech. They are completely gone away from what commanded, the God commanded them to do. Ten tribes have been scattered abroad, and there are two tribes that are actually carried off to Babylon it doesn't look like that this group of people are going to be what God called them and had original thought for them. Because when he looked at Abraham and said, it's going to be through you and your seed that all nations would be blessed, that the Messiah would come. When you're looking at the situation of Israel and how they've backslidden against God and they've went against his ways and now they're scattered throughout the earth, there's no way that you would think that God could use this group of people that his plan could still come to fruition through their lives and through that seed. When you're looking at this, it looks like a very bleak situation. And so the Bible says that God moved on Ezekiel. And he set him down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. When Ezekiel was describing this, he said that the bones were very dry. Now, bones are dry to begin with, but... These were very dry. I don't know if they're ankle deep. I don't know if they're knee deep. All I know is that he was able to walk around because the Lord had him walk all around and look at this valley of dry bones. And as he's looking at this valley of dry bones, the Lord begins to speak to him and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? I love Ezekiel's answer. Because if he's looking through his own eyes, the answer is simply no. If he's looking at the situation in front of him and what he's standing in the midst of, right in the middle of, there's no way. It's not possible. But he knows that God is not wanting an answer from him. And he just simply answers back to God. Thou knowest. If you want them to, then they can. And the Lord began to speak to Ezekiel and says, I want you to prophesy unto the bones. And I'm going to cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel did what he was commanded. He prophesied. And what he simply prophesied was bones live again live again and as he is speaking this the bible says that he sees sinew and flesh come upon the bones and skin covered them above but there was no breath in them 
Then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breath upon these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood up on their feet. And whenever they stood up on their feet, they became an exceeding great army. I love this because as you're looking at the situation, it looks like there is no hope. It looks like there's no way that they can live. But here's what the Lord said. You do your part, Ezekiel, and I will do my part. You prophesy and do your part, and then I'm going to cause breath in the dim, and I'm going to cause them to live again. I have come to be that preacher to somebody's life and somebody's family today and say, I know it looks bleak. I know it looks hopeless but I'm breathing on you saying live live again the word of the Lord didn't say that they just had skin on them and that they just barely survived but the Bible said they became an exceeding great army here's what I think today that there's a group of people that have slidden away from the Lord they haven't done what the Lord has called them to do but they got a call and a purpose on their life and today he's wanting you to live again have purpose again have a calling flow through your life again Somebody worship the Lord in this place. Psalms 139. David writes this, but it's written after he has some life experience behind him. It's written when he has failed God miserably. He has failed humanity miserably. He's committed adultery, and then he has murdered Uriah. But after that moment of his life, you would think that it would be over, the calling and the purpose and the plan of God. But if you trace the history of David's life, he sat on the throne of Israel for 42 more years. It was after that that he began to put everything together for the house of God. He said, Lord, I want to build you a house. The prophet said, go ahead and build it. But then he comes back later and says that you can't because you got too much blood on your hands. So David began to put everything together. He put the flesh hooks aside. He put the gold aside. He put the wood aside. He put the blueprints. And now it's called Solomon's temple, but really it's David's temple because it's all put together. And he hands it to Solomon and says, hey, you put this together for me. It was 42 years that the zeal of the house of the Lord ate him up. And it's in Psalms 39 that he begins to reflect over his life. And he begins to reflect about the hand of God on him. And he said, where should I, would I be able to go from your spirit? Where would I be able to flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the, of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What he was simply saying is, is that when I'm doing everything that I should and I've ascended to the highest of highs, you're right there with me. Your hand is on me. You're leading me and guiding me. But when I slipped and when I fell and I found myself making my bed in hell it was even in that moment at the lowest moment of my life you didn't forsake me you didn't leave me you didn't walk away but I felt something familiar on my back it was your hand that was leading me and guiding me and holding me I want you to know that in your life you're going to have moments when you're riding high you're going to have moments when it's all together and God's going to be with you but don't you think for a second when you fall down and you make mistakes and you make your bed in hell that God left you. No, his hand is leading you. His hand is guiding you because he loves you. How many in here can testify of the goodness of God? When I wasn't faithful, he was still faithful. When I wasn't good, he was still good. When I was, he did it for me because he loved me. I love Romans chapter 10, verses 20 through 21. 
says Isaiah is bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Do you see the mercy of God flowing through that? What he was saying is this right here. When you weren't looking for me, I was still looking for you. When you didn't want me, I still wanted you. Israel was disobedient, but I still was stretching forth my hand, waiting for the moment for them to turn around. And that is your life. Even though you've backslidden, even though you've taken a step back, he's right there looking for you. When you didn't care about him, he still cared about you. When you weren't thinking about him, he was still thinking about you. When you didn't care where he was, he still cared where you were. He loves you with an everlasting love. Somebody thank the Lord for his mercy and his grace. Isaiah 42 and 3, a bruised reed. He will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Reeds grew in the marshy areas. It grew where there was the mud and the mire. Mire was this type of soil where different animals would go and they would die and it would cause it to be a place where things could grow easily. And there were certain people that that made their living. It was their occupation. So what they would do is that they would wade out into the water, into the marsh, marshy areas. They would wade out into the mud, into the mire. And they would find a group of reeds. They would pluck them from the marshy areas. And after they had enough where they could carry them home, but I mean, they maxed out their potential there. They would carry them from the marsh. They would carry them from this, this area full of mud and mire, and they would take them home. And they would take the reeds, and they would begin the cleaning process. They would wash the reeds and wash the mud and wash the filth and wash the mire from them. And as they were cleaning them, sometimes they would come across the reed that had a tear on the outside, had a defect on the outside, and if there was a tear, if there was something wrong on the outside, it wasn't perfect on the outside, they would take the reed, Brent, and they would snap it over their knee and they would throw it into the fire because it wasn't worthy to be used. But after they got enough that they could take it down to the marketplace, they would then take this group of reeds, they would take it down to the marketplace and they would set up a booth. Somebody would come by wanting to buy these reeds Somebody that was gifted in making things out of these reeds. A lot of times they would make instruments, they would make flutes out of these reeds. And they would begin the haggling process. Say that I'll give you $28 for one of those reeds. No, no, I, I gotta have 32. It's inflation. We gotta have 32. Would you take 29? I tell you what, today and today only, I'll give it to you for $29.99. If you'll throw in a penny, we won't have to mess with all of this change. How about I buy a dozen of these reeds and you give them to me for $29 a piece? You know what? It's a deal. They would take these reeds home and from there they would begin the process of making an instrument, making a flute. They would sand them down. They would carve holes on the top, at the bottom of it. And as they were doing this and they were hollowing it out and they were doing everything they needed to do to make this instrument, oftentimes there were things on the inside that you couldn't see on the outside. It was called a bruise. It was something you couldn't see with the eye. Something on the inside hidden from everybody else. It was a bruised reed. And if they found a bruised reed, 
they would snap that knee over, that, that, that reed over their knee, and they would throw it into the fire, and they wouldn't use it because it had to be absolutely perfect. But after they got enough that they could take them down to the marketplace and sell, after they stained it and painted it and made, made sure that it sounded just right, they would take them down to the marketplace and they would start the haggling process all over again. Somebody would come by that was a musician and they would look at these flutes. They would find one that sounded how they wanted it to sound and it looked how they wanted it to look. And, and the one that they wanted, it was absolutely perfect, had the right sound, had, had the right, they could play the right notes with it. And so they would begin to bargain with them what they were willing to pay, what they were willing to give for this flute. And, and after they came to the, the price that they agreed upon, they would take this flute and these musicians then would take them down by the seashore every single day what they would do during the work week they would take them down and as the sun was going down all walks of life would come and listen to these musicians play these instruments people that were farmers working out in the hot sun and they were physically tired and exhausted from tending the crops and pulling the reed the, the weeds and all of those things there were fishermen that were throwing out the nets and dragging them in and they were just physically worn out people that had worked in the marketplace and they were emotionally and just drained from haggling and and trying to barter they were just tired all walks of life everything that you can imagine they would come and they would gather by the seashore as the sun was going down and they would listen to these musicians play their instruments these flutes because music has a way of carrying us to another place you can be really down and listen to a fast song and it'll begin to revive your spirit right you can listen to a love song and think about the first time you and that girl your hands intertwined there and you just, you know yeah that's our song that's our song you can hear a country song and be depressed for the next two weeks Sorry. <laughs> Hear some southern gospel, Brother Lyles, and get to tap on your foot. Well, we got some southern gospel. We got to get on that on the books real quick. Because music has a way of just carrying you to another place. I have been driving before, and, and it'd be late at night, and driving from one revival to the next or whatever, and just be absolutely worn out. And here's, what I, here's my method of, of getting out of that. I don't, want, I don't want to drive off the side of the road, so I stop off at a gas station and get some sunflower seeds and turn some fast music on because it has a way of just reviving. But they would listen to this music and it would carry them to another place. They would forget about life for a while. They would forget about what was going on in their life. But in order to be an instrument of worth that could be used, it had to be absolutely perfect. There couldn't be anything wrong on the outside and there couldn't be anything wrong on the inside that nobody could see. If there's anything wrong on the outside, if there was a tear on the outside or if there was a bruise on the inside, it would be snapped over somebody's knee and thrown into the fire and it could not be used because they weren't perfect. And that's the way of the world. When you got issues of your life, they will discard you quickly. When you got moments in your life where you're not everything you need to be, they will discard you quickly. They will point their finger at you. But this was talking about the Messiah and said that when he showed up on the scene, he wouldn't be like the rest of the world. He wouldn't discard you because you got something wrong on the outside or the inside. No, it said a bruised reed. I won't break that reed. And the fire that's going out, I won't put it out because as long as there's something left, Jesus believes if he can get you in his presence, he believes if he can pour out his mercy and fill you with his presence, fill you with his spirit then he can make something out of your life and I look at a group of bruised reeds here today tears are something on the outside Isaiah began to prophesy about 10 chapters later and he says that I was wounded for their transgressions and I was bruised for their iniquities a wound is a laceration on the outside of the skin that's what a transgression is. It's what everybody can see. They know it. You can't hide it. There's no way to hide it. But a bruise that's internal bleeding. 
You ever had a bruise on your knee before and you couldn't even see it, but if you touched it, it hurt, right? And it's the stuff that you've kept hidden from everybody else. That addiction that you've kept hidden from everybody else. That depression that you've kept hidden from everybody else. That problem that you've kept hidden from everybody else. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions, but the stuff on the inside, the bruises, he was bruised for your iniquities. He loves us that much. Let's thank the Lord for his goodness. I grew up kind of in church, sort of. When I was a kid, my dad was a youth pastor. I remember falling asleep. You had to sleep underneath the pews because you fell asleep on the pews. It was dangerous back then. You could have a bobby pin just go clean through you. So I fall asleep underneath the pews. My dad was a youth pastor. And when I was, a, I just turned seven years old. Um, my mother got in a fight with the pastor's wife. And she got bitter. She got bitter. That's what the enemy will do. Who calls you some type of strife, gets you bitter. So she stopped going to church. And she picked up some habits. She started hanging out with the wrong crowd. And she began to pick up one addiction after the next. She became a heavy alcoholic, a heavy drug user. We stopped going to church when I was about seven. And I remember there were times that, that we would come in, my sister, my father, and I would come into the house and my mom would be strung out on whatever she was strung out on. And she would hallucinate that we were little demons, little leprechauns trying to get her. And so she would just go out of her mind. And she would run and grab stuff and start throwing at us. I remember her grabbing little drinking glasses and throwing them. And we're dodging them. They're shattering it up against the wall. And she completely gave herself over to that habit. There were two different times that I remember coming into the house and there was just stuff slung out everywhere. Her and her friends had went through the house and robbed the house as quick as they could. They were just trying to find something that they could, they could sell real quick so they could get some money to just keep in on that habit. So my parents got a divorce and... Um, when you say poverty, there was poverty, then there's <laughs> where I lived. I have, a, I have a picture. I don't know if you can see it. It showed up small. That's the house that I, I grew up in most of my, my childhood there. And um, central air and heat, I didn't know what that was until I was about 17. I had this little air conditioner unit. It was just a window unit. And if you lived in Warner Ridge, I'm telling you right now, you think you have mosquitoes here. If we sent the mosquitoes here up there, they wouldn't survive. Those mosquitoes would beat the daylights out of them and send them back home. <laughs> so if you, you had that air conditioning running, it was great during the summer. But if it ever froze up or shut down just a little bit, what you would hear, and it would be hard to sleep because you hear... You couldn't see where they were at. But we grew up in just, just abject poverty. It was, I remember there were times where we had nothing to eat. Anybody ever remember days like that in your life? Nothing. Find you a piece of bread. Um, we just didn't have money to fix stuff. There were times where our 
plumbing was so backed up, it had no ability to fix it. Like I have blocked out of my mind where for months I even used the restroom at. Have, I can't remember it. Just blocked those things out of my mind. Didn't have anything. I remember that there were times before my parents got divorced that my dad would have to literally hold my mom down to try to get her to calm down. For hours I would listen to this go on and I would be in my bedroom and I would say, God, one day I'm going to get out of this. One day I'm going to get out of this. As soon as I could, I got a job making the big bucks, four twenty-five an hour at Dairy Queen. And when I was 16 years old, there was a young man by the name of Nathan Greer that walked into Dairy Queen. I think that it was at the end of May. And he said, man, you got to go to church camp. It's a church camp. He said, there'll be a lot of girls there and you can play softball. And I was like, hey, bro, where do I sign up at? Let's go. So I went to church camp, <laughs> and Brother Terry Shock was preaching that camp. And it was on a Wednesday. I was trying to get a date that wasn't working out, but I was playing a good softball week. It was a good week of softball. And my friend asked me, he said, will you go to a prayer meeting before uh, service. I was like, absolutely, man, I'll show up. And when I went to that prayer meeting on a Wednesday, God just flattened me. Like, I'm, not a, I'm not a crier by nature. Now, I'm getting older, so sentimental years are creeping up on me quicker. But, man, I just started bawling. I was, I was weeping. I was crying. I, I couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. I went out to service and I cried through the entire thing. I cried through every song. I cried whenever they were taking up the offering and I was putting my dollar in there. They're like, my goodness, he, he's crying over the dollar there. I cried through Brother Shock's message that he preached. I cried through the entire thing. And whenever he said at the end of that, if you want the Holy Ghost, make your way up to the front. And as I was walking there, there was nobody throwing their hand on my head telling me to let go or hang on or nothing like that. On my way to the altar, God filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When he filled me with the Holy Ghost, he filled me with the Holy Ghost. I mean, I got so drunk in the Holy Ghost that they picked me up off of the stairs and they carried me back to the dorm, and I fell asleep speaking in tongues. But when I woke up, I knew that I had found what I was looking for. I went back home and started attending a church in Pocahontas, Arkansas. And I remember it was that summer that I was getting ready for Sunday night service that the Lord spoke to me a book, chapter, and verse. And I went and looked it up. I didn't even know it was in the Bible, but sure enough, it was there. And it says, I've called you to preach. I'm reading this. I shut that Bible, and I'm like, there is no way that just happened to me. And... Um, I kind of denied all of that, and I remember it was a couple of weeks later on a Wednesday night, there was a guy from Mississippi that was preaching. I couldn't tell you who he was. He's up there preaching on a Wednesday night, and in the middle of his sermon, he stops and he looks at me, Jason, and he says, you haven't been in this long. God has called you to preach, but you're telling yourself you haven't been in it long enough, and you don't have, and he went down the line of everything I was thinking. He says, just receive your calling and preach the gospel, son, and turns around and keeps preaching. I'm thinking, what just happened? So it was like a couple of weeks later, our youth pastor told us on a Wednesday night that he's going to have three of us young guys in the youth group. Um, we're all going to preach a sermonette. And we had 15 minutes apiece. 15 minutes. My dad had been backslidden for over a decade. 
I had invited him during the summer. I was like, Dad, you've got to come to church. And he says, no, I've went too far. I've walked away from God. I've disappointed him. He went through, down the line of what we all think. And I was like, Dad, you, you got to come. I'm preaching. My fr- I can't come, son. There's no way that I can come. So who we all, 15 minutes apiece, I'm slated to go last. I remember these other two jokers saying, I've got too much material. There's no way I'm going to get it done in 15 minutes. They both get up, and less than five minutes, they're both done. I'm thinking, man, we're about to get out of church early up in here. And I get up, and I'll never forget, I was preaching on, it's easier for a rich man, and for a and camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter. I guess because I was poor, I had to preach against rich people, you know, so. <laughs> and how, the, you know, a camel's going through the eye of a needle, that was a place in a city, and, and they would have to unload, and they would have to get down on their knees and crawl through, and if you're going to make it, you know, I'm, but as I'm getting up to give this text, my dad walks through the back doors of the church. So I'm reading that, that text, and I get up there, and I scream my head off for 10, 15 minutes. Ah, I got a rich man. And at the end, I was like, I don't know if anybody wants to pray. I don't know if anybody, you know, I don't have a clue how to do an altar call. And as I'm up there, just, I don't know what I'm saying. My dad gets up and makes his way down to the altar, and God refills, God proves again, as long as there's something left. He had been lied to from the enemy. Your bones are dry. There's nothing left. God can never use you. God has forsaken you. He doesn't love you. But all of that was a lie. And the Lord was talking to me saying, just breathe, just prophesy, just preach. And he made his way down and I laid my hand on his head and God refilled him with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Ah. Asked my mom for years, you got to come back to church. God loves you. She wouldn't listen to me at all. I'd prayed for her for over a decade that God would bring her back. Prayed and prayed and talked and talked and talked. Did all of that stuff that I could. Gave up on the prayers. Stopped praying them. And when I showed up to Fort Smith, God used something as a pra- that I thought was a practical joke to bring her back in. There was a guy that was saying, I don't know, eight, eight, nine years ago, there was a guy that was saying that the Lord was going to come back on a Saturday at 6 o'clock. Some of y'all have heard this. Some of you haven't. The Lord's coming back at 6 o'clock. My mom calls me and says, you hear about this guy that says the Lord's coming back at 6 o'clock? And I said, absolutely, Mom. She said, what do you think about that? And I went on a 10-minute dissertation, making up Hebrew words that weren't real. And I was like, if you'll read this word, it's ha-ha-kul, and it means this. And I just started just pulling stuff off the top of my mind. I couldn't even tell you because it was just off the top. And I said, from everything I've studied and everything I read about what this guy's saying, the Lord's coming back at 6 o'clock, and I couldn't be any more excited. Son, you don't mean it. I said, yes, Mom, he's coming back tonight, 6 o'clock. She said, what do you, I remember the conversation. She said, well, it says, no man know the day or the hour. And I was like, mom, that's not what that means. And I just went through and just made up a whole, you know, and I'm just kidding. You have to know me. That's just my personality type. She said, I'm going to call you at six. I said, there'll be no need. I'll be gone. <laughs> she calls me at six o'clock. I don't answer. She calls me at 6.15, I don't answer. She calls me at 6.30, I don't answer. She calls me at 6.45, I don't answer. She calls me every 15 minutes on the dot. And I don't know, was it at 8, 8.30, my wife looks at me, she has a heart, she says, you better answer that phone. And I answer it, and I was like, hey, mom. And she's like, oh, I thought you were gone. I thought the rapture had taken place. I was like, oh, Mom, I didn't mean to scare you that. She's weeping on the other hand. She's like, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get it right. You know, I'd heard that 100,000 times. I was like, all right, Mom, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm you know, just kidding with you. And she said, are you preaching anywhere close to you? And I was like, you know what? Matter of fact, next Friday night, I'm preaching a youth rally in your hometown. I'm going to be there, son. And I got up, and I preached about soul winning on a Friday night. It had nothing to do with backsliders or praying back through the mercy, the grace of God. And at the end of that sermon, God proved one more time 
time, even in your foolishness and being ignorant and everything that you've done, Wes, even in you giving up on that prayer and not talking to her and witnessing, even when you put it aside, I remember every prayer. And God proved once again as she made her way down and I laid my hand on her head and God refilled her with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I've come to tell somebody, I know it looks like a valley of dry bones. I know it looks useless. I know it looks hopeless. But somebody needs to move some bones around and say, you're going to live, son. You're going to live, daughter. You're going to live. Somebody needs to square up in your own life and say, it's not over. He still loves me. He still cares. He's still for me. He's not against me. His hand's with me. He's holding me up right now. Somebody just needs to say, you're going to live, son. You're going to live, daughter. I know. I know it doesn't look good. I know it looks, I know you've tried a million times, but you don't know how and what God is doing behind the scenes. To you, it looks like you've been fishing and tooling all night and haven't caught anything. You don't have any results, but what you don't see is on the other side. God has held up a blessing. He's held up provision. And he said, I know you tried it your own way. Now take those nets and throw it on the other side and you're gonna begin to pull and feel, oh, they're coming, they're coming. That blessing's coming it's on its way in come on that's it somebody begin to pray right now come on that's it lift your voice somebody you've been praying for that child for a long time you've been praying for that husband that wife for a long time you've been praying in your own life god i need to see deliverance i know it looks like a valley of dry bones but i'm here to say live 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 Oh, that's it. Just pray. Oh, yeah. I tell you the bullshit. I want you to stand in this place right now. You're wondering about how much God loves you? Anybody, you ever been there? When you take stock of who you are, and all the ignorance that's in your life. It's so easy to say, there's no way that he could love me. I'm going to show you a picture of God's grace. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter number 33. There is this guy who's king by the name of Manasseh. And the Bible said that he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. He brought an idol right into the house of God. And he set it up right in the house of God. He sacrificed his own kids to a false idol. He killed his babies. He leads Israel far away from God. And the Bible says that God kept speaking to him. Kept asking him to repent. He wouldn't do it. So the Lord gave him up to the king of Assyria. They killed thousands. And they took old Manasseh and they drug him away with hooks and chains. They put him in a dungeon, chained him up on a wall. Yeah. While he's chained up on a wall, 
and it looks like his life is over. It's at that moment that he bows his head and he begins to pray, God, will you forgive me? He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty. God was moved by his prayer. And he heard his plea and he brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. He was called to be a king and he threw it all away while he's chained to a wall. God have mercy. And the Lord restored his position, restored his call. And you know what Manasseh did after that? He tore down all the high places. He got rid of all the idols. He led all of Israel back, back to the ways of God. There's some people in here that God's hand has been on your life as a child. And it looks like you've thrown it all away. You're bound up with chains. But God's purpose in your life and his calling on your life has not changed, changed at all. And if you will just simply humble yourself and you'll begin to lift up to heaven and say, God, will you have mercy on me? You're going to feel chains break. You're going to feel the Lord begin to restore you. And you're going to be used in the kingdom of God. You're going to lead people back to God. You're going to lead your family back to God. You're going to lead people around you back to God because his purpose in your life is not Chains. Somebody begin to pray unto the Lord. I promise you I don't deserve any of this. This is God's grace and mercy on my life. These are my two boys. Different stages of their life. I remember this picture. We trying to get them to stop laughing long enough to take the picture. I remember the steps that we took this picture on. Weston Nebraska, I want you to come here. See here. here. These two boys, I know these pictures here, it looks like they could never do anything wrong. These are sweet boys, right? But I promise you, they're going to do something stupid in their life. They're going to do some stuff in their life, and they're going to blow it. You want to know how I know? Because everybody in here has blown it at some point in their life. 
but I love these boys. There's never been a day in their life that they've blown it so bad that I wouldn't give everything I have. And I want them to know that no matter where they find themselves in life in the future and whenever they do, wherever they're at, there's never going to be a day that they can't call dad. And wherever they are, I want Billy to run and help them as much as I can. Unless they need help burying a dead body. Then they're out on their own. I'm going to prison for you guys, okay? But the Bible says... If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more? If I love these two boys that much that I would fight anybody, and I would, that if they messed up and they find themselves in a ditch, I wouldn't do everything I could to drag them out. I want you to breathe real loud into this mic. You hear that? As long as he has that, as long as there's anything left, this daddy's going to do everything he can to love these boys, to help them, to make sure that I can do everything I can. And the Bible says that I'm evil compared to him. And if I'm willing to do that for them, how much more? I know you found yourself in a place that you shouldn't be in. I know that you've thrown some stuff away. I know some things in your life look bleak. You're standing in a valley of dry bones. But as long as you have anything left all you gotta do chained up to a wall is say God I blew it will you forgive me I'm done the Holy Ghost is here Somebody just needs to listen to what I'm saying today, and you just to make either for yourself or somebody you know, you need to come down and say, God, there's breath left. And as long as there's breath left, there's life left. As long as there's life left, there's a chance of forgiveness and mercy and grace. These altars are open right now. If you want to come, I feel like the power of the Holy Ghost is going to flow in so many lives today. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. I hope this word has blessed you. If you are in the River Valley area and are looking for a church to attend, we would love for you to join us right here at TPC. Services are Sunday at 11 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. You can visit us at our website at www.tpcfortsmith.com and on Facebook at the Pentecostal Church Fort Smith. Here you will find any information you may need. Thank you and God bless.